Loving Father, we thank you that we can meet as your people, uh, chosen by you, uh, rescued through the blood of your Son, and, uh, and helped by your Spirit. And Father, we pray that uh, as we meet now, we would have uh, a great mind, a great heart, a great knowledge uh, that reminds us that we fellowship with each other, but most especially such fellowship centres on you. And so, Father, we pray that you would be central to everything, uh, that we'd hear you speak, that we'd respond with faith and uh, repentance, uh, but we also seek to glorify your Son, that we'd be obedient to your word. And so we ask this in his precious name, all to your glory. Amen. Uh, when I sat down to prepare this talk, uh, I did a Google search. And I put in simply two words, ill discipline. And I wondered what would come up. Thankfully, my name didn't come up. Uh, but on the page, there were six entries about sport. Okay, so the Wallabies this, the Wallabies that, the Wallabies this. And then the men's cricket team this. The Because ill, ill discipline, right? And there were two records about school children. And I flicked to the next page, same thing. About six entries about sport and two about uh, children in school. Uh, which had me thinking it's little wonder our sporting heroes are sometimes branded as ill-disciplined children. Uh, but we need to be careful because ill-discipline doesn't only relate to sporting heroes and naughty school children. Uh, it's the concern for the Christian. And so it's little wonder that the Apostle Paul uses a sporting analogy to speak about spiritual discipline in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. Verse 24, do you not know, can you see chapter 9, verse 24? Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it, uh, make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Uh, Corinth hosted major games events. Uh, can you imagine the chariot racing? What a spectacle that would be. Or the foot racing, or the wrestling, or the boxing. And the prize, of course, was not a gold medal. They competed for a garland of something like... A, ga a garland of celery. I'm holding celery in my hand. You can see that, can't you? Uh, gold medal or celery, what would you prefer? Uh, and it would be wilted and it would be wrapped around their heads like a laurel. But it's, it doesn't strike me as very exciting, but there it is. Who here would run and compete for a stick of celery? Lots of shaking heads, no. Uh, how long would this celery last on your head and then, you know, in the sun? It wouldn't be pretty. We know what celery is like when it's found in the fridge. Uh, it's not good. 
uh, or sometimes it's pine or wild olive. Notice the we, we having embraced the gospel, we all run together. It's a race with a single focus that requires self-sacrifice and discipline for a crown that will last. Notice the crown is not salvation here. It is not works. Know that Paul writes to people who are already saved. They already profess to be Christians. And notice too the emphasis on not how we start, but how we finish. Paul wants this church to finish well, to run like they're already winners. But his fear is they've fallen off the track completely. What is the crown? Again, it's not something temporary like a stick of celery. It is something eternal. Verse 23 might help us. Paul says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I might share in its blessings. The blessings of the gospel. Eternal gospel blessings. I wonder if you can name them. Never-ending peace. Can you imagine that? Immortal bodies. How would we like that? Worshipping Christ with the multitude. Everlasting friendship with God. Perpetual love. Life eternal. All purchased for us by Jesus. Now how does it compare to this? Is it a no-brainer? Absolutely. It's some crown. Can you imagine forgiveness forever? In the gospel, we have already been given so much, yet so much more awaits at the finish line. And so Paul wants us to run like that is true and to finish the race like we are winners. So let me ask you again, do you want that crown, that crown that is the blessings of the gospel, or do you want this? Which is it? The choice is yours. And so we come to chapter 10, and the burden here is that Paul does not want to see the Corinthians disqualified. Uh, and he appeals to history to teach them. So verses 1 to 4, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, so we're all still reflecting on the end of chapter 9, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so we know that story, don't we? We know Pharaoh v. Moses, don't we? Who won? Moses. We know the Exodus. We know delivery from slavery. We know they crossed the Red Sea and they went through the waters, which sounds suspiciously like a baptism, doesn't it? Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from that spiritual rock that accompanied them and that rock was Christ. Dun, dun, dun. That's where the preacher in his prep goes, Ah! Okay, what does that mean? Let, well, let's do the hard work. Roll up our sleeves. Uh, think, what we need to do is we think, Old Covenant people Israel, 
and new covenant believers. You got that? And notice Israel in her exodus from Egypt and her wanderings in the wilderness towards the promised land, that prefigures the experience of Christian believers. The Israelites, they were baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the Red Sea. That's what the Apostle Paul says. And we know that believers are baptised by water into Jesus Christ. By being baptised, the peoples of each covenant, the old and the new, are joined to their deliverers. And for us it's Christ and for them it's Moses. But more, in each covenant, the people ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. And so, of course, Christians eat from the loaf and we drink from the cup at the Lord's table where there should be one loaf and one cup if we're going with Paul. And there at the table we remember Christ's death. And the Israelites, what did they eat? When they were in the desert, they ate manna in the desert and they drank water from the rock. Both of which prefigured what was to come later. These things, the cup that we drink from and the loaf we eat from. The covenants then are not separate and they're not even different. The point Paul is making is they go together. The same kind of thing. And they actually go back to back, if you like. And so, redemption from slavery in the Old Covenant, in the New Covenant, becomes cosmic redemption from Satan, sin and death. The journey here in the Old Covenant, as they travel to the Promised Land, becomes life's journey towards the Kingdom of God in the New Covenant. Now, Paul tells this predominantly Gentile church of Corinth that those Israelites who came out of Egypt were our ancestors. Did you see the word ancestors there? Or our fathers. Those Hebrews are our spiritual ancestors to whom we belong as the one family of God under Christ. Paul is saying the manna and the water were blessings from the promised Christ. Which means that the Christ was the very source of life for the people then, as he is today. If you can get your head around that. Maybe when the Old Testament is read then, we need to also say there, glory to you, Lord Christ. That would make sense to me. Maybe Paul has John's Gospel, chapter 6, open and he's seeing that Jesus is the very bread come down from heaven. As Jesus talks about the desert and manna falling from the sky uh, that we know to be true, he says it's true in the Gospel as Christ comes down from heaven. One is a promise, the other is fulfilment Yet it's the same Jesus who gives those blessings. Which shows that it's always, 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 always been about Jesus. 
but there's a thud coming. Verse 5, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So yes, we know the story. They, Israel came out of Egypt, but only how many entered the promised land from that first generation? Two. Caleb and Joshua. The rest perished in the wilderness. But what does this have to do with the Corinthians, uh, the Christians in Corinth? See, Paul is worried the believers in Corinth who think they stand, who are super, super confident, Paul's worried they're actually going to fall, just like the Israelites did. If we sin in the ways the Israelites did, then we in the churches will just as surely perish along the way. And so Paul is determined not to be disqualified himself, so he submits himself to self-discipline, and he encourages the same for Corinth, and he encourages the same for us, to be spiritually disciplined and to have the same determination for spiritual survival. Verse 6, Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Okay, so we go, well, what particularly did they do? And there's a list. Verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We heard Kathy read that out for us from Exodus 32, didn't we? That's the golden calf story where they worshipped at Sinai a false god, an idol they made themselves, and they engaged in revelry. The innuendo there is sexual immorality, which brings us to verse 8. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day... 23,000 of them died. Again, that's Numbers uh, chapter 25. Israelite men here worshipping Moabite gods with Moabite women really only means one thing, and we know how God responded. 23,000 of them died. What do you think God thinks of sin? Uh, what else? We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. Test Christ. How did they test Christ? Uh, the snake story comes out of Numbers 21. Israel doubted God's capacity to provide for their needs in that chapter, despite God repeatedly displaying his love and his power to them. But for Corinth, God has also repeatedly displayed his love and power to them as well in Christ Jesus. Yet they press and they test. That Jesus gave his life is not enough for them. They somehow expect more. And so they grumble. Verse 10, that's the next thing. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Israel grumbled about entering the promised land. Remember they kicked the dirt? Well, we're not so sure. And in number 16, when God disciplined those who thought they knew better than Moses, they dared grumble about that too. Israel rejected Moses. Israel rejected Moses. You can see that in all four of those problems. And the Corinthians are rejecting the Apostle Paul. And they're turning to their own popular teachers 
of wisdom and they are settling down comfortable into temple worship and fornication. Might not be a golden calf, but it's pretty much the same thing. They're enjoying their pagan lifestyle and the last thing they need is Paul turning up to interrupt uh, their life because it's none of his business apparently. The application at this point isn't super hard, I don't think. See, some congregations dislike and reject any pastor who, like Paul, face the members with their sins and the spiritual dangers they're in because of those sins. That is true. And I'd respond by saying, what a terrible crime that would be that the pastoral team of any church would love their church family in such a way that they would love you by calling you back to a life of faith and repentance. That we should care about your salvation and thus care so much about your eternal future. How blind and tragic it is that some might even choose to be indignant about such love. How dare we? I mean, that would be scandalous and sadly it can be. But of course, you can know that the pastoral team here, because we do love you, because we care about your eternal future, you can be supremely confident that we will. The Corinthians didn't like Paul. And many professed Christians today still don't like Paul. They dislike him intensely for the stand he takes on theological and moral issues, especially sexual issues. Yet he knew, as we should know, that idolatry in all its forms, sexual immorality, trying the patience of Christ and grumbling about uh, apostolic preaching, they're all deadly sins. For such sins killed the Israelites physically before they reached the land of hope. And they will destroy us spiritually unless we turn from them in faith and repentance. Verse 11. These things happen to them, that's Israel, as examples and are written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. You can be sure that God will always judge the worship of idols. God will judge sexual immorality, fornication. He will judge the testing of Christ. And he will judge grumbling or denials against God's word. To be sure, the judgment for us in our age might not appear as physical as it did in the Old Testament drama. Right? There are no snakes under our pews this morning, are there? But spiritually, catch the gravity of this, spiritually it's just as devastating as people are quietly cut off from their life in Christ, falling in the desert, so to speak. 
I mean, we know it's been observed many times about an apparent decline of Christianity in the West. And I want to ask you this morning, are the numbers of those once connected to church life and once appearing to run the race with us, are the numbers greater than we find in the Exodus story? We have generations missing from our pews that no longer know God and certainly no longer worship his son who loves them enough to die for them and why well there are lots of possibilities but if we follow the pattern here according to the apostle paul we have to ask well is it idolatry is it true people have found other things to love good things even noble things but it's not a love it's not an adoration of christ I mean, plenty of people choose good things, but good things are not the same as the best thing. And the best thing is Christ Jesus. Is it sexual immorality? That's not a hard one, is it? There's a moral chasm today between God's intention and worldly practice. It is tough living in a Christ-honouring way when the influence of the world is so pervasive? What about testing Christ? Do we have people that doubt his power and his provision and his love who would dare say it's not enough? Do we have people that even dare dare question his existence? Or the grumbling where we doubt God's goodness and we doubt His authoritative word, that was the grumbling, where we doubt that he knows best. It's funny about grumblers because they always think they know better. Have you noticed that? Verse 12, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. There is the warning for us this morning. Pride and arrogance was a major problem in Christ's church. In chapter 8, the Apostle Paul described the conceited as puffed up. They're bloated and overconfident because of their supposed knowledge and wisdom. They even believe they had outgrown the Apostle Paul. That's in chapter 4, verse 6, 18 and 19. They were shamelessly proud of their lofty acceptance of gross sin in their midst. That was chapter 5, if you remember it. And they were insensitive and uncaring about the impact of their liberated behaviour on the vulnerable fellow believers. That was chapter 8. And Paul leaves them in no doubt about the dangers they are in. So verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Paul is saying there is nothing extraordinary about our temptation. There are no special concessions that anybody can claim, including us, which means there are no excuses. That thought kind of grabbed me this week. Maybe that grabbed you. There are no excuses which means that any attempt at self-justification is always going to fail. 
From the cradle to the grave, we have all have a fallen nature and we all struggle with sin and temptation. Verse 13 means that you can't put it back on God. We worship a good God who is perfectly moral, constant and loving and who is unchanging and who keeps his promises. He is the faithful one where we are the unfaithful. He is a faithful one who will not let you be tempted beyond what we can bear. And that is a truth for us to live by. Maybe the Corinthians were claiming the strength of temptation was too great. Paul's reply is, no way. God is bigger than any temptation we experience, of course. And as Christians, we have the assurance that his loving hand is there, ready to shield us in every circumstance, that by his strength we can resist sin and temptation. It means that God will not allow us to be shut into a room without any exits. Whatever the temptation we face or the trial we must endure, we are not locked in by it, but rather God will always provide us with at least one door through which we can make our escape. And maybe that means, that means of escape is a Christian brother or sister who holds us accountable. That would be God's provision. Someone who stands with us in the trial. Maybe it's your Bible study group. It's encouraging you to grow. And that would be the nature of true Christian friendship. It's the nature of pastoral care and pastoral work. And that's what the Apostle Paul proves to be for the Corinthians. Christians in this life, we are caught up in the sufferings and disappointments of life, which none of us in the end, we we can't regulate or control. But in the long term and in the eternal perspective we must place ourselves with confidence and quiet trust in the loving and faithful hands of our God. We must entrust ourselves to him. And so the choice is ours. We either turn to God or we succumb to sin. We can run the race knowing God is our running partner, coaching us as we go, cheering us on even, and delighting in us. With the Spirit pointing us to the one who's already run it perfectly, his son Jesus. Or the alternative is that we can aspire to the celery stick, or like Israel, we can fall in the desert. Friends, may we seek to finish well with this gospel of grace. The choice is ours. Amen.